Hey, Kevin. Uh, thank, thank you for reading my book. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, I enjoyed it. Thank you. And uh, uh, so what, what did you think while we're waiting for people to show up so they don't hear it? Everybody doesn't hear it. <laughs> so I was initially incredibly intrigued by the title. I mean, it's, it's Whiplash, How to Survive Our Faster Future. And it's the subtitle that I'm most interested in. Turned out to be a little bit more general advice for mm -hmm. everyone and addressed more to individuals. But I'm particularly interested in this question because I'm concerned with how we as a civilization can survive given the enormous increase in uncertainty and acceleration of technology. And, uh, um, and I guess we have people showing up, but so you're, you're, you know, uh, uh, we work together at the media lab. You're, a uh, a, a new faculty member and, uh, it was, it was really actually, too, I, I, have, I think I've told this story too many times, but I'll tell it again. I mean, um, you, you applied as an evolutionary sculptor. So we thought that you were an artist that wanted to do sculptures about evolution. And so we were like, oh, that's kind of intriguing. But then once we actually looked at what you were trying to do, we realized it was really different. Um, I mean, can you tell me what evolutionary sculpting is? Well, I view it as a means of engineering very complex systems, specifically the subset of complex systems that are composed of replicating patterns. So we normally say evolution and we think life, right? Living things evolve. And really what evolves for the most part is encoded in DNA, at least in our living things. But in reality, evolution applies to any informational pattern that can copy itself, as long as that copying is imperfect. Because that, if it's imperfect, then that means you can create variations. And some of those will be better or worse at copying themselves. And the ones that are copied more effectively will, of course, proliferate at the expense of those that don't. And that's just as true with, for example, ideas. So as a group, sculpting evolution is focused on understanding the rules by which any kind of information is replicated. And that's sort of a hedge because even though I come from a nearly pure biology background, mm -hmm. I'm becoming more and more interested in how society is shaped by the invention of new technologies. And in particular, because I'm on the hook for a big one. Um, so unpack that a little bit more. So, so you're using evolutionary biology, uh, uh, science theory and mathematics to try to understand how these ecosystems, uh, uh, evolve and are, uh, 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 and are, can be modified? Is that, is it kind of like a systems intervention? Yeah, very much so. Um, I think of a lot of education as every new field you study sort of gives you a pair of glasses with which to look at the world. And those glasses help emphasize different aspects and provide you with a new way of seeing things. I think this is really gets to the heart of your, of your chapter about diversity. And it's very important to be able to switch between different ones. But the ones I'm most familiar with involve looking at a system from a sort of as an adaptive landscape. So in evolutionary biology, we think of things in terms of the, what's called the fitness landscape. And the idea is any given DNA sequence is encodes, of course, an organism or a small protein within an organism. But the idea is every potential DNA sequence has an intrinsic fitness. That is, how good is it at replicating itself in the environment it's currently in? And if you envision all possible 
DNA sequences, all the mutants surrounding it, they have an associated fitness. So if you think of this in three dimensions, it creates a mountain range. And you can think of populations as being clusters of sequences. And the ones that are higher up out-replicate the earlier, the ones that are lower down. And so the population slowly climbs to the highest point of the fitness peak. And of course, it's much more complicated than this. It's hyper-dimensionally vast actual fitness landscapes. But it's a very useful metaphor for thinking about how things and systems evolve. So for example, take antibiotic resistance. If we throw an antibiotic at a bug, then almost all of them are going to die. The ones that survive are those that are resistant in some way. And some fraction of them are going to have had a mutation. That is, they're going to be at a different point in sequence space. When you throw the antibiotic at them, you eradicate most of the current mountain, and you replace it with, you completely change the landscape, so now there's probably a very narrow peak that is resistance. So everything on that peak is resistant to your antibiotic now. They still have to do everything else, but resistance is the foremost criterion. But if you throw multiple antibiotics at it, then the peak might be further away, because you need to resist both of them, or all of them eventually. And so the question is, can evolution make enough changes in the population to reach that space and survive? Or is the population of the microbes eradicated? And this is true for bacteria and antibiotic resistance. It's true for, say, HIV and cocktail therapy. It's true of all sorts of things in biology. To the extent to which it's true in ideas, I'm not so sure. But the point is that this is a useful lens for thinking about things, because if you want to change how a population is going to evolve, how any kind of information is going to evolve. You need to think about, is can you change the landscape so that it will do what you want? So what I was just talking about is a negative way. You want to, you want to ensure that something stops harming us. But you can also think of it in terms of how can we trick something that is incredibly complex and evolving into doing what we want. So for example, all of our crops, all of our domesticated animals, have all been selected for traits that we want. Dogs for being good companions, being able to guard or dig or what have you. This is why we have so many different breeds of dogs, because over many generations, people have preferentially bred the dogs that had a particular trait. That is, they defined the fitness landscape so that the peak was a, in a place that would make the dog more useful to humans. And we've done that for not just dogs, but pigs, cows, goats, sheep, all the domesticated animals, and of course, all of our crops as well. So if we can control the fitness landscape, we can control how an incredibly complex system, because there's no way we could engineer a dog from scratch, right? That is immensely far beyond our capabilities. We can't even engineer an individual protein to do what we want as well as nature can. But what we can do is control evolution so that the system evolves to create some sort of tool that is useful to us, no matter how complex. So um, John asked the question, which um, leads more from the CRISPR gene drive stuff. I mean, maybe do you want to explain what CRISPR gene drive is and also uh, describe how you've approached it? Because I mean, I think it's important to describe the fact that you and George wrote this paper before you'd even discovered it. Um, and if you want me to put up an image, I can. Yes, let's put up the let's put up the Daisy Drive image. 
that doesn't explain the whole thing. Okay. But it will but it will get there. So <clears throat> gene drive is a phenomenon in nature in which essentially a particular gene defies the normal rules by which the genes play amongst themselves and essentially replicates itself preferentially over all of the other genes that it's currently a passenger with. That is, you have an organism, and if it reproduces sexually, then most organisms have two copies of every given gene. And if they're different, each of them has a 50% chance of being inherited by offspring. So the way a lot of gene drives work is that they can distort inheritance so that they're more likely to end up in any offspring that occur. And that's interesting because normally when we engineer an organism, no matter how we do it, through selective breeding like dogs, or through now we have CRISPR that lets us precisely edit essentially any DNA sequence we want in the genome of almost any organism, either way we're tinkering with something that evolved over many, many, many generations to optimize reproduction in its ancestral habitat. Meaning you mess with it in any way, put it back in that habitat, and we've almost certainly broken it in some way. And the upshot of that is we can't engineer things, put them in the wild, and have them stick around. Natural selection beats us. But with a gene drive, if it's more than, if it's more likely than normal to be inherited, it can decrease the fitness of the organism and still spread in a population. So a brilliant scientist by the name of Austin Burt, who had studied one particular form of gene drive that exists in the wild, thought, hey, if we could just engineer these proteins called nucleases to cut sequences that we wanted, we could use this to engineer wild populations. And he was specifically focusing on engineering mosquitoes that spread malaria, so they couldn't spread malaria anymore. Problem was, it wasn't possible. We just couldn't engineer the nucleases. But a few years ago, I played a very, very minor role in helping to develop CRISPR, which is a nuclease that we can use to cut any sequence. That's how it lets us edit any DNA sequence. We can program it to cut the original. We supply an edited version. And the cell tries to repair the damage once it's cut and incorporates the edited version. Now, the, I wondered, well, what would happen if you inserted the edited version of the gene you wanted, and then right next to it, you encoded the CRISPR system that you used to make that edit. And you can see in the top left of the image there, you have on the left, you have the wild type chromosome. And on the right, you have a gene drive system. So the green rectangle encodes the CRISPR nuclease and the instructions telling it where to cut. In this case, it's telling it to cut the wild type version of the gene. So it cuts it, there's a double strand break, and then the cell repairs the damage by copying the DNA on the other chromosome, which in this case encodes your edited gene and the CRISPR system. So what happens is that this organism goes from having one copy of the drive system and the edited gene to two copies. And since it has two copies, that means that when it mates, all of the offspring are guaranteed to inherit a copy. And in those offspring, editing happens again. One copy becomes two copies. And this happens on and on down through the generations until eventually we have spread that edited gene to the entire population of that species. And the result is, what, is the graph you see on the top right, 
that is the frequency of the edited gene, the edited allele, as we call it, goes from zero to effectively one in a very short time and basically stays there. The problem with that is, okay, in principle, we can engineer a wild population, at least if it's sexually reproducing. It's comparatively slow because note that this time is in generations. So if that was in humans, you know, the time required to go from zero to one in this case is about, I think it's, we started at something like one in, uh, one in a thousand. And that means it's going to take roughly under ideal perfect genetic mixing conditions, 14 generations to spread to the entire population. In humans, that's forever. And of course, you're not starting with one in a thousand. You're starting with much less than that. So it won't work on humans. It won't work on elephants, whales, anything like that. But mosquitoes breed very, very rapidly. So it could work on mosquitoes. Problem, of course, is it has everything it needs to copy itself. And this is, in principle, easy enough to do that a lot of people have the ability to engineer, say, a fruit fly to do this. And if they were to do that and let it let that fly escape outside, there's a non-trivial chance that it's going to find a mate and most of the offspring are inherit. And, in, and if enough of them survive to mate and their offspring inherit, then it, the odds that it will, by chance, go extinct become low enough that it will eventually spread through the local population around wherever this was released. And then further, by assisted by human transport, all around the world, potentially to every population of that species, whatever that species is. And if that happens, you can kiss whatever form of public trust in scientists and scientific governance and genetic engineering goodbye, because we would have accidentally converted an entire wild population into genetically modified organisms. Why would anyone trust us if we screw up that badly? Now, the actual risk that this is going to do any harm to an ecosystem is pretty close to zero. Because unless you design this very, very carefully, the version that, of course, the version that doesn't harm the organism is going to outcompete the version that does. And there's ways that drive resistance will develop in the population, the resistant mutants will be selected for. The ultimate upshot is a vast majority of gene drive systems would do no harm whatsoever. They wouldn't affect any other species at all. So I'm not really worried about the ecological risk. There are some cases where it could happen. It's not non-zero. And I'm not really worried about the security risks either, because this is slow. It's unfailingly detectable if you bother to look for it. And you can overwrite it. That is, you can build another one that will, that will overwrite whatever changes the first one made. So even if the first one did cause some sort of problem, you could overwrite it with another one, which means that it's a very poor weapon. So I'm not worried that we're going to accidentally screw something up in the ecosystem, particularly. There's a chance, but I'm not terribly worried about it. We have to try hard. And if someone were to try hard in an unauthorized way, we could counter it pretty easily. Just to put that in perspective, most different ways of weaponizing biology are not slow, are not easily detected, and are not and cannot be countered that readily. So I'm not worried about any of those things. It's this loss to public trust in science that I'm deeply concerned about, because we Trust in institutions and experts is already at a record low. And thanks to companies like Monsanto, trust in genetic engineering in particular is exceptionally low. So, and yet this is a technology where supposing we were to alter the major species of malarial mosquitoes so they could not carry the pathogen, 
that could save hundreds of thousands of lives every single year. Malaria kills a child every couple of minutes. So we would almost certainly lose the chance to do that for at least a decade, meaning millions of people would die unnecessarily, all because some scientist wasn't, or some person eventually in 10, 15 years, some person working in their garage wasn't careful or wasn't thinking about it. And even worse, we've already had a case where a group of scientists who wanted to engineer organisms in their lab more easily built one of these things without realizing the implications. And fortunately, we learned about it and talked with them and got a handle on it and came up with general safeguards and have done our best to publicize them and so on. But it's demonstrated that there's this problem in that technology, as exemplified by gene drive, is becoming more and more powerful. And as evidenced by these other guys, it's all too easily for super specialists, and you almost have to be a super specialist in science these days to make any progress, just can't reliably anticipate the consequences of what they're doing, especially as applied to other fields. And this really dovetails with your book, specifically in the introduction, and the principle of risk over safety, in that things are changing so fast that trying to fix things is hard. Trying to anticipate things is hard. It's almost better to try new things very, very rapidly. But maybe you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Also, like, but, how, how does this overlap? Yeah, no, it, 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 it's, it's, it's great. I, and, and I think, um, well, part of my risk over safety thing is, I mean, sort of what you said, but, and it's also the resilience over strength thing, which is, it's, it's almost impossible to design a system that doesn't fail. And so what you're trying to do is design a system that fails elegantly and fails in the right way. Um, and that you sort of have to assume failure. Um, and also you have to assume that anything that looks like there is no risk probably has the ultimate hidden risk. And the risks that we know, uh, uh, are, are, are really important. And, and so, you know, do you want to describe the daisy chain and some of your safety technology? Because I think that's a great example of, um, assuming, uh, that there is going to be risk. Uh, what do you do in order to, uh, uh, so what you're not doing, so you're not mitigating the risk, you're managing it, right? Um, that's right. And so this, we, so this was a fundamental problem that we had to face because we, so I first thought of this back in 2013. And I may well not have been the mo first person to think of it because, of course, Austin Burt first thought of this in 2003. But, being working in the field of mosquitoes, you know, not necessarily following the cutting edge of technology, implications of CRISPR, not necessarily obvious. And everyone in the mosquito field thinks about mosquitoes. And I admit that for a while after I first thought of it, I happened to see a paper in which they had implemented Austin's idea, not in an actual workable in the world fashion, but just as a proof of principle that if we could have a nuclease work, then we could engineer mosquitoes this way. So I looked up that work, found Austin's original amazing paper and but it took me a while to realize this wasn't just mosquitoes. This is anything we can engineer with CRISPR, which is, in principle, almost anything. And that made it much scarier, right? If it was just African malarial mosquitoes, and it took 10 to 20 years to do that, which is the way it would have pre-CRISPR, there aren't really any implications for the rest of society. It's when you add CRISPR and say, hey, wait, this can be done to anything and any gene in almost any sexually reproducing organism, that's when there are implications beyond tackling malaria. I mean, it does mean, yes, we can definitely tackle malaria. We can do it in an evolutionarily stable manner. We can hit schistosomiasis, which is almost as bad as malaria. You know, on a local level, we could hit Lyme disease and so on. But 
there's this risk to public trust in science. And there's this risk that I could be wrong about my assessment of the risk to ecosystem or to security or what have you. But more to the point, okay, we realize that this is possible. What do you do about it? Apparently, we glimpsed this technology before anybody else. Tried to think about what the consequences were. So we had called together a meeting of ecologists, evolutionary biologists, molecular biologists, geneticists, ethicists, national security people, representatives of environmental NGOs, and said, okay, what should we do about this? And the consensus was, tell the world. Because it's more important to tell the world, especially before anyone actually builds one, because then you get advance warning to do something about it, to change the regulations, to warn people not to do it accidentally, to get people used to the idea, to get more people thinking about what might go wrong before we actually open the box. And of course, the reason to do it is it was almost certain that somebody else would think of it soon anyway. So, so and so we did. We told people before, before we actually did it in lab or anyone else. And then we showed that it worked in yeast and so on. And then the surprise result in fruit flies by a group of scientists who had never seen our work, thereby demonstrating the problem. Even though we had been looking for people trying to do this in fruit flies, our efforts to tell people in the fruit fly community that really fell through. We weren't fast enough at doing that and focusing on that. And so we nearly lost everything in the first year. So far, we're still going okay because we caught that, but it was a really close miss. And that was with listing all the safeguards, right? I mean, the irony was what they wanted to do could be done using the safeguards that we described in our original paper. Because the first thing we did was describe everything that we thought it could do comprehensively, the risks that it posed, the ways to deal with that, ways that this could be worked with, we thought safely in the lab, how confident we were in those things, and, and much more. But that really wasn't enough, right? Because people are going to want to use this. And as long as people want to use this, eventually someone will. That is to say, if it is possible for a small group of scientists to build something that could take a decent crack out of malaria, someone's going to want to be a hero and release it without consulting everyone else. And I think that that will ultimately destroy our ability to use this technology to solve many different problems. And if you just try to ban it, you're only going to drive it underground. You can't close the box again. Once the box is open and well-known, you can never close it. What you, the only thing you can do is, if you see it in enough time, you can try to control how it is opened and change the landscape around it to shape the consequences as best you can. And so if you can go to the daisy drive thing, again, sorry for the long digression, the global version just isn't very useful because it spreads indefinitely. That is, if you release it in one area, you want to engineer an organism because you've achieved consensus or close enough in one country, it's going to spread to other countries. It's not going to respect borders. It's going to spread potentially around the world. So how are all, say, African nations harboring malarial mosquitoes, how are they all going to agree to do this together? And they've done it before in terms of biocontrol when cassava was threatened by a uh, by the invasive mealybug, they all agreed to introduce a parasite of the mealybug to control it back in the 70s. But this is genetic engineering. Most of them have laws banning the release of any genetically engineered organisms in the environment. So it's hard to see how people are going to agree to do this in general. 
I mean, maybe malaria and schistosomiasis are serious enough that it'd be worth it. But in general, other than that, not so much. And one of the things you could do with this is help in conservation. So the deadliest species when it comes to causing extinctions, other than us, is rats, particularly on islands. You introduce rats, lots of species go extinct. We could use a gene drive, a suppression drive, to spread infertility to eliminate the rat population. But as soon as you release that, A, the rats, of course, could hitchhike on ships and spread elsewhere in the world, and then you may have suppressed rat populations throughout the world. The risk that they will actually go extinct is, I think, near zero, just as it's nearly impossible for any disease to actually drive a species extinct. The same logic holds for gene drive. The odds that a resistant mutant will arise are just too high, unless we are directing it. That is, unless all of humanity is consciously trying to build new and newer versions, and nobody decides to intervene by blocking it, you're not, never going to drive it extinct. But so what? It's still going to spread worldwide, and you're going to have a social backlash against the technology. So you can't do it for anything like that. So the question is, how do you localize it? And the daisy drive is, is one idea that we came up with for how to do that. And the idea is, okay, the normal gene drive has everything it needs to spread indefinitely. It's the easiest version, but it's also almost too powerful to be useful. So what we wanted to do is figure out a way to make it local and to make it still easy to engineer. And the, and the way that this works is you separate the components. So it doesn't have everything it needs to drive anymore. So in this example, you split it into three pieces, which we call C and B and A. And you can see on the left, you have an organism that has one copy of each of those three. And you can see from the arrows that C directs the CRISPR system to cut the wild type version of the same locus that B is in. In other words, C causes B to drive. Whenever C is present in an organism, B gets copied. And B causes A to drive. So whenever B is present, A gets copied. But there's nothing there causing C to drive. C is like a normal engineered gene. That is to say, once you release it, it's only going to go down because natural selection will gradually remove it. But while C is around, it will cause B to increase in abundance. While B is around, it causes A to increase in abundance. A has whatever you want. So you release a bunch of daisy drive organisms, and they will spread A in the population. The frequency of A, as you can see in the graph of the green, increases. But then eventually, it decreases and goes back down to zero. So this is a local and temporary version, and you can tune it by releasing more or fewer organisms wherever you want. And we have further versions that once it runs out of daisy elements, once it runs out of fuel, so to speak, it blocks gene flow with the wild type. And so that ideally we could keep it within even say the confines of a given municipality. Say one town decides they want to do this. Um, one of the things we're working on is preventing Lyme disease by immunizing the mice that infect the ticks. If one town decided they want to immunize all their mice, in a very inexpensive way, because with this, you don't have to release many mice, then they could alter their own mice without affecting the next town over. That's the idea. Instead of, have, instead of requiring the entire world to agree because it would affect the entire world, which is the global drive, you make it something where individual communities could make their own decisions without forcing those choices on everybody else. And so that gets back to your emergence over authority. Mm -hmm. The global version is a single authority making the decision for everyone, everywhere that species lives. And to give you an example, the mosquitoes that spread Zika, those live in 
more than 100 countries harboring more than half the world's population. International agreement, just not going to happen. But with a daisy, we could do it not just country by country, but city by city, town by town, removing those mosquitoes, which are invasive through most of the world, from, say, all of North America. So this is a way to harness that emergence over authority principle, is one way of putting it. And once you've built a daisy, it's very easy for another scientist to adapt it to do something else. It's a general system for altering populations, and, but a local version. So, our, so what we're working on now is to build daisy drives in different organisms, demonstrate the principle, and then we want to build it in all the relevant organisms to sort of preempt everyone from building the global drive versions. Because in most cases, that's just asking for trouble. So can, can you talk a little bit about what you're doing in Nantucket? I'm going to pull that slide up. Yeah, so one of the challenges of this sort of thing is most of the prob- big problems in the world that can be addressed with any given new advance in technology are in the developing world. That is, most more of the problems are there. But at the same time, that's the most socially sensitive region to go intervening in. That is, you have your fancy new technology. What are you going to go to? Test it on the people who are least likely to have the educational background and the organization to make an informed decision about it. Bluntly, it smacks of neocolonialism. You're using, you're using the poor as guinea pigs for your new technology. Even if you're trying to help, that's how it's going to come across. It's arguably better in a lot of ways to work with populations that have a history of making of collective decision-making and are privileged enough to have the education to make an informed decision. And so we wanted to find a problem that affected, that people deeply cared about, wanted solved, that was around here. And we settled on tick-borne disease. So I'm from the West Coast. I'm from, I grew up in Seattle and Portland. And I ran freely through the woods as a kid, right? That's the iconic image of American childhood, running freely through the woods. That's what kids do. And here, a lot of people don't let their kids do that because the risk of tick-borne disease is so high, especially on the islands of Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard off the coast of Massachusetts. And these are, yes, vacation resorts. You've probably heard Martha's Vineyard is where President Obama and his family go regularly to vacation. So here's a case where these communities are have incredibly high rates of tick-borne disease, particularly Lyme disease, although there are others, babesiosis, et cetera. And yet these are also New England communities that have a long tradition of town hall democracy. And they're also chock full of people who are trained in medicine, ecology, et cetera. So the idea is, can we prevent tick-borne disease by immunizing the mice? Not the ticks, because A, most people don't want us to engineer ticks that are going to bite them. And B, the mice actually reproduce much faster than the ticks. Ticks have a two-year generation time. So if we were to try to do anything to the ticks in a way that would spread over generations, it would just take a very, very long time. But almost all ticks get infected as best as the ecologists can determine when they bite white-footed mice. And that's true of almost all the tick-borne diseases around here. So what if we could immunize all of the mice in a heritable manner? So now we have vaccines against Lyme disease, and they work on the mice. They actually work on humans too, but that was withdrawn from the market 
That was the beginning of the anti-vax movement. You can still get them for your, do for your dog. It's actually the same human vaccine, but it also works on mice. But you can't vaccinate every generation of mice in the wild every year. It would just be too expensive. But what if we were to take those mice that are immune, that have antibodies, their immune systems have evolved antibodies that can bind to and recognize the pathogen and protect them against it. What if we were to take those mice, sequence them, find the sequences of those antibodies, and then encode it in the mouse germline so that they produce those antibodies from birth? If we were to then release enough of those mice into the environment such that the resistance gene would then spread, all of the mice would be immune from birth, and you would block transmission from mice to ticks. And disease rates would plummet. By how much, we don't know. We'd have to try it and see. But we wanted a place where we could talk to small communities that could get a grasp on the problem. And communities that wanted the problem solved, because again, we are proposing releasing hundred, probably 100,000 engineered mice onto Martha's Vineyard. That's the nature of the proposal. Now they're engineered, but they're, they would be 100% mouse. And we found that just on talking to the communities, which we did before we did anything in lab, that they, that really matters to people. I mean, you can talk all you want about how cows are 25% snake because a genetic element from snakes somehow got transmitted probably through a virus into cows a million or so years ago and then spread until it was a quarter of the cow genome came from snakes very recently. So think about that the next time you eat a steak. <laughs> Similarly, sweet potatoes. Recently, it was found that the, a natural gene transfer event, probably using a bacterium, very like the ones that most ag companies use to engineer plants, occurred at the dawn of domestication of the sweet potato. So sweet potatoes are natural GMOs. Same mechanism. All of them. But it doesn't matter. People are more comfortable with things being 100% native, whatever it is. Personally, I chalked this up to sort of the, I mean, it's something interesting about human society, but I think it was best articulated probably by Rousseau, this notion that the natural is pure and good and so on. And if you think about, if you're a biologist and you think a lot about disease and parasites and so on, then it, this is very, very hard to understand. But it's nonetheless something that people feel very strongly. And the reality is, this is a proposal to alter the shared environment. It can only be done with the support and, in fact, guidance of the community. So what we really wanted to do was to set an example of how you should go about doing projects like this. And so we looked to the best example so far, which is this project called Eliminate Dengue that began in Australia, similar logic. And the idea is they were going to infect the mosquitoes that carry dengue with Wolbachia, which is this naturally occurring bacterium that isn't normally in those mosquitoes, but is in a bunch of other insects. And it happens to block dengue but through means that we don't really understand. And they talked to the communities about this, ran a bunch of tests the communities wanted, and, really, and got community support and did it. And it worked great. And that's actually being scaled up and expanded now in Indonesia, Vietnam, and now they did releases in Brazil to combat Zika, because it also blocks Zika. But we wanted to do better than that. We wanted to actually ask the communities what they wanted us to do technically in the lab before we did anything at all. 
before we engineered mice, before we even vaccinated mice, and so on. So we went to Nantucket in the vineyard first, laid out the idea, and listened to people to see what they thought. And we only decided to move forwards once we had a mandate from the community saying, yeah, we're at least interested in this. You have a green light to at least proceed with laboratory research. No promises that we'll eventually release these, but but go ahead in the lab. And I'm really excited by this project because first of all, it's been a pleasure to work with these communities. Second, I expected a lot more opposition than we actually got. I mean, when you think about it, a lot of people in these communities really are, are anti-GMO. A lot of them are anti-vaccine. And yet, propose releasing 100,000 engineered mice and a lot of people who don't vaccinate their kids and would never dream of eating a GM, any food labeled as GM, say, can you start on my property? And this is just astounding. And I think it shows that it depends on what are you offering people? Can you solve a problem that they care about? And, and it's interesting because this reminds me of um, Stuart Brand's point about precautionary principle versus uh, cautionary vigilance, which is a lot of the risk over safety and resilience over strength, which is basically the world is trade-offs, right? And, you know, I don't think you want to take risks when there's no upside. And I think the Stewart's um, version of this is the science used to be precautionary principle, still is, which is you list all the risks and if they're scary enough, you don't do it. And precautionary principle is uh, you list all the trade-offs. You list everything that bad that could happen, and hopefully you know the likelihoods and all the good things that could happen. And the decisions should be made based on these trade-offs and these um, balances, and then you iterate on it as you gather more data. And I think this is a really great example of how, in a way, these town halls work, because these people are able to sit around, try to understand the science, um, and uh, realize that um, while they don't want to take the risk of... Um, some unknown thing happening through a GMO, they sh sh sure are willing to take the risk um, because they have all these friends that are suffering from Lyme's disease. And and um, you know, I, I guess the, the the and the question, I mean, you sort of brought this up, you know, with um, working with developing nations versus working in a uh, fairly well educated community like Nantucket. But the I think one of the things that we probably need to work on the most though is going to be at you know at what point is this informed consent, right? How, how much do they really understand what's going on? And how much are they going to turn around and blame you if something goes bad by saying you didn't explain it well is one piece. And then also, you know, where's the government in all of this? Um, the regulators are probably not able to keep up with all of this. And I, I the reason we love you and we wanted you to join the Media Lab was that of all the scientists who work on this stuff, I, I think you're the only one at this level who is thinking about the deployment uh, risks and structures and, and informed consent and everything that we talked about um, and the safety stuff, um, which I think is essential. I mean, I, you kept pointing out, um, I mean, one of my favorite examples is, you know, if the, although, you know, uh, Edison used the electric chair uh, to <laughs> talk about electricity, if the city of lights in Paris wasn't the first real application of electricity, but it was actually electric chairs, um, people probably wouldn't have been excited about um, electricity. And I think this thing that you're doing in Nantucket, if this turns out to be a success, um, I think people are going to be much more likely to be open to these sorts of things. But, but, I, but I'm curious, one, about, you know, as a community of scientists, how are you 
um, getting um, other people to think about this because, like you said, you might be doing it the right way, but some kid in uh, you know California could go uh, go and ruin this for everyone. Um, I mean, how 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 do you regulate this? And because because and is it a government thing or is it a community of scientists thing? This is something. This has been a, the real learning experience because. When we first described this publicly, I mean, we actually contacted the regulators. So at that very first meeting where we called together the experts, we had people from NSF, from EPA, from FDA, which actually would regulate would regulate these mice, and national security people there. So we informed the government very early on before we went public with it. And when we did go public, we had published two articles. One was a technical piece describing what the technology could do and going into all the detail. And then the other was a piece in science calling in their policy forum, calling for regulatory reform. It's been more than two years. It's been almost two and a half years since then. How many countries have actually enacted policies aimed specifically at gene drive or adjusted their regulations to accommodate it? One, the Netherlands. And what they did is they said, decided to say, we don't know how to handle this. So we're going to say any gene drive research requires a biosafety level four lab which is not actually relevant to gene drive safety in any way. That's a Biosafety is about protecting humans, not escape into the environment. But the point was there are no biosafety level four labs in the Netherlands. <laughs> so this is a way of saying, no, you're just not going to do that unless you come and talk to us and get a special exemption, which works, I guess. But the point is it's been more than two years and no other government has done anything, which really illustrates that point of your, your emergence over authority. Authority can't keep up. It's just too slow. So we've been trying to do these stopgap measures. We've been first trying to let all the scientists know about the danger. I spent I spend a lot of time talking to iGEM, which is an international genetically engineered machines competition, a bunch of talented undergrads and even high school students who play about with genetically engineered organisms. Very important that they understand that they should not insert the CRISPR system and instructions for targeting it into the same place that it targets. Because you do that in a sexually reproducing organism, you just made a CRISPR gene drive, boom, gone. Now, yes, you run the risk that someone, one of them is going to do this deliberately. Eventually, that's going to happen. But we have to push it off for long enough so that we can do some good with the technology first. The other challenge is, how do you keep private companies from charging forwards with productive applications? Now, with the global version, it's not that much of a problem because... Gene drive isn't very commercializable. It's sort of a one-shot, let me solve the problem everywhere in the world, which does not a recurring revenue stream make. But as soon as with Daisy, if Daisy works well, that's going to be an issue. So we need to simultaneously work with these communities to have, a, to have an example of a positive application, build on work before. And we're by no means the only ones who have studied this problem of how you do community engagement and work with communities. We're trying to take it further than others have. Um, and by building on those past examples. But we need to do that in a way that we can have a success somewhere before someone screws up. And the policy level we've been finding is just not going to help us. And the risk of someone doing something unethical or even worse, accidentally, just because they weren't aware enough or didn't care enough to take precautions, is just way too high. And I'm most worried about, frankly, other academics who might just not understand the gravity of, of what they're toying with or might not even understand the implications. 
like like the original people who did it in fruit flies without really understanding. So there's only a couple of other ways to try to regulate how the research is done to ensure that it's done in an ethical manner. And in this case, I think in an ethical manner means done in the open. Because if you're talking about a technology that is designed to alter the shared environment and you do it behind closed doors, you are by definition denying people a voice in decisions that could affect them. Especially so if it's a global drive system. Because if you even make that in the laboratory, then you're running the risk of an accident or someone deliberately breaking in and letting it go. Just building it is a decision that could affect everyone who lives alongside that species anywhere in the world. And so if you do that without telling them people first that you're planning on doing it, then you're denying them a voice. And we know for a fact that the more voices from different perspectives you have who are going to look at that technological box before you open it, the better the chance we have of, of predicting the consequences. We need a system to, we need a systemic means of increasing our wisdom because our technology is getting ever more powerful and it has to, right? Coming back to your precautionary principle point, the strong version of the precautionary principle says don't do anything until you can understand all of the consequences. And that's fine as long as you get to stay where you are if you do nothing. But that's not the world we live in. It might seem that way to some people, but that's not the world we live in. Civilization is not sustainable. We need continued invention. We need new technologies because otherwise we're eroding our natural resource base and we have to invent our way out of it. There's no other choice. We've passed the point of no return. There's too many people. We need to be more efficient. We need new technologies and they have to be ever more powerful, but that's a double-edged sword. How do you ensure that we use them wisely? How do you ensure that we don't accidentally open a technological box that destroys us all? They're out there. There are some in biology. I'm not going to talk about it further, but they're out there. There are also some countermeasures that people are working on that will hopefully ensure that those boxes stay closed and eliminate those risks. But how many more are out there that we haven't seen? How many are out there in other fields? I mean, people are very aware of this in AI as a potential risk. People are very aware of this when it comes to nuclear weapons. How many other things are out there that we just that no one has thought of? I mean, your book makes this point very, very clearly. We can no longer reliably anticipate the consequences of new technologies. And that's true even of the people who invented them. And I think that's becoming more true as we become more and more specialized. So the notion that we discover things and invent technologies by sending out teams of ultra specialists who then open every box they find without consulting anyone else, that's a recipe for disaster in the long run. We need to change the default to allow more people to take a look at the boxes and figure out maybe this is something where we need to wall it off as best we can, desperately pour money into countermeasures. There are going to be some cases where you don't want people to even know that the technology exists because publicizing it is the danger. But if you don't see it in time to make that decision in the first place, then you're kind of hosed too. So I think the default has to be openness. There are going to be some cases where as soon as you glimpse it, someone in the know needs to be able to make the call and, and have the resources necessary to try to divert everyone else while coming up with countermeasures. But above all else, we need to stop exploring with the lights off. 
because we invented the lights, right? We invented the light bulb. It's called, it's called IT. It's the internet allows us to share our lab notebooks with every other scientist in the world in real time. And, and I think one of the things I mean, you mentioned this already and, and Molly Brown's commenting on this as well. Um, but if you look at some of our new leadership that's been, uh, put in place in FDA and EPA, um, and just the general bureaucracy and speed of governments, uh, we, we don't, we can't rely on traditional, uh, structures for the countermeasures. And so I think that, uh, uh, I, I know you're working on this, but I think that it's imperative to try to come up with some sort of, I mean, it almost reminds me of like Warren Ellis's global frequency. I don't know if you remember that, uh, cartoon where you had these people all over the world that had these special devices. And when there was an emergency, they all got a call and they all worked on it. But there, I mean, it seems a little bit utopian, but I think, I think we need to figure out, in addition to having, so the internet's a, a wire line level communication system that can connect everybody in real time. But I do think, and this is some work that Iyad Rawan in our lab is working on, which is scalable cooperation. How do we coordinate this very complex effort? And, um, and as you said, we have to inform and engage the communities, but we also have to filter or at least manage the attacks on the systems by um, people with financial interests, people with, uh, a variety of, of misguided interests. So, so what's really fascinating to me on this, at this level right now is you've got this whole complexity of the scientific establishment, which is very difficult to manage. But now we've got to plug this into the media, the political system. I mean, this is a fairly difficult, complex, self-adaptive, you know, um, coordination system that we need to design. And I think though, having said that, I think systems are much easier to design when you actually have something to work with. And I think that your Nantucket project is actually a, a really good sort of microcosm of, of, of a bunch of the different attributes that we would have in a larger system. So, um, I'm, I'm glad you're doing that. The, 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 you know, although it does take a little bit of time, but I think the more that you can get the word out, um, at the science level, um, the better. But I think, I think we do need to get it out. Um, because obviously you're talking about biology, but it's true for everything else. I mean, the climate stuff is very similar. I mean, you, you can do things that look like on the surface, uh, like um, palm oil uh, to be a great idea. And then it turns out that it devastates forests. And so, so that feedback system in these complex systems, I think is really important to be building in. So, um, so I look forward. Well, and, yeah, go ahead. Well, I I'd just like to move before, I know we're running out of time here, but this gets back to my original point about fitness landscapes, mm -hmm. because the notion, I mean, it's a common attribute of complex systems as a whole, it also shows up in economics, right? People ask, well, what are the economic incentives of the various players? And that is something you have to take into account when, because institutions are also evolving systems. And so the challenge here is that science is done behind closed doors because it always has been. Mm -hmm. Science evolved before we had the necessary communication technologies to do it in the open, which means that the incentives for scientists are broken. Because if you share your brilliant idea, you're basically inviting someone with more money and hands to throw those resources at the problem. And under the current system, if they do that, they publish first, you get zero credit, they get all of the credit. So nobody does that. Everyone keeps their plans a secret, which is incredibly inefficient and wasteful, right? Mm -hmm. No one would design science. No one would design the scientific enterprise to be the way that it is now. Mm -hmm. but, we're, but it is the way it is. We're stuck where we are on the fitness landscape. How do we reach that higher peak over there in which people can intelligently either cooperate or compete based on the knowledge of what's actually out there, who's interested in what, how much progress they've made. 
I think that that is probably a that is probably a higher fitness peak than the mm-hmm. current one we're on. Mm-hmm. Both because it would be, I think, advances would come faster because you would you wouldn't waste your time pursuing something that unknownst to, unbeknownst to you, three other groups are already doing, and you'd be able to find the collaborator that has the key that just made the key advance three months ago, almost immediately. But it'd also be safer because if everything was done in the open, then you could have arbitrary groups of interested people, be they government, be they private. I mean, Open Philanthropy Project, Future of Hum- Life and Future of Humanity Institutes are very interested in looking at global catastrophic risks and keeping an eye on these things. So it's not just government security types trying to keep an eye on things. There's, there's, private, there's private sector, nonprofit, and academic groups that are doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And if everything's in the open, then you can keep an eye on things. If every, all research was done in the open, then we would have been able to, de- to identify the fruit fly guys and what they were doing based on keywords of, are you inserting CRISPR in the genome? We would be able to find them and say, hey, can you take some additional precautions? See, you know, take a look at our work. And we were looking for that, but we had no idea they were doing what they were doing because research proposals are kept secret. So how do you change the system? Well, first of all, you have to be careful because, again, we need that system. We need new advances. It's an incredibly complex system. There could be unexpected feedbacks. If you people know that George Church's lab is working on something, does that mean that the smaller labs are just going to not bother? And then in the, having come from the church lab, I know people get distracted and leave or complications come up and then it never gets done at all. Maybe things would be slower because of that. You know, you need to be careful. So that means comes to a general principle of engineering complex systems. You want to make the smallest possible change that you think will solve the problem because then you have the fewest potential side effects. But you also need to start small, start local, see if it works and scale up. So we're trying to do that in the field of gene drive because it's new. There aren't that many scientists. I've talked to most of them. And the general consensus is we're happy to do everything in the open if you can protect us from being scooped by other labs. Mm-hmm. That is, if mm-hmm. you can ensure that we're not going to get screwed over by being open, then we'd love to be open. And several of them have generously joined us in sharing their plans anyway. Check with it because it's the right thing to do. But we're also working with the journals and the funders to try to change the incentives. Because if the journals say, look, you've got to submit a pre-registered report of your research plans, whether that's making your grant public or whatever, if we're going to publish the results in our high-profile journal, that changes the incentives for scientists to be open in this field. Same deal if the funders say, yeah, we'll fund your work. Your grant proposal is going to be public now. That's a contingency of getting funding. Mm-hmm. And then the last one we're looking at, well, we're looking at policy, but I'm less optimistic about that because government speed. But the last one we're looking at is, can we use our intellectual property? Because IP is something that, I mean, IP law reaches worldwide. If you have IP, if you filed for it in enough countries, and then can you use that to govern how the research is done? So we're looking at the possibility of using the, the patents that we filed from Harvard and MIT, we're negotiating with for access. Can we give, get them to give those patents or authority over them for research only to a nonprofit that, we're, that I'm working on structuring that would then use them combined with ideally philanthropic money for litigation as needed to regulate the research, to say, if you're going to work in this field, then you need a license, assuming you're in a country that has that, depending on the research licensing exemption laws in different countries. But if you need a license, we're going to give you one for free, but only if you do all your work in the open and abide by the safeguards that the scientific community has decided is necessary to work with this sort of thing. 
Personally, I'd also throw in a decade or so long moratorium on for-profit applications. Again, to get the technology out there to solve the biggest, to do the greatest amount of good in the shortest possible time, prioritizing in order to legitimize it. So we don't end up with GMO foods again, which benefit a small handful of people, do nothing for most people, and, and yet they're stuck with it anyway. And then they reject it because it's not doing any, anything good for them. So this is sort of an all connects together. Yes, we're trying to ensure that gene drive works out because I am morally responsible on some level for all of the consequences of that, but also to use it as a lever to change how we do science, how we do technology in general, by showing that we can shift it towards a more open system that could then spread maybe to, as you mentioned, geoengineering, to gain a function research with dangerous viruses. And there is a danger in that. You could have groups of loud activists who might be a tiny minority, but would then be empowered to shut down the research. Something we're gonna have to be careful of. But I think we have to try something different because we don't know what's going on in the current system of authority-based regulation is just not working. And, and you know, I think the in um, Donella Meadows' uh, list of interventions on complex systems, you can do a lot of things like fiddling with incentives and stuff like that, but one layer, which is sort of the goals or the paradigm, I mean, you don't win a Nobel Prize for creating a system that self-regulates science. You get a Nobel Prize for sort of bang for the buck, right? And so I think one of the other problems is that we're fundamentally incentivizing scientists to think locally <laughs> and not in systems. And I think that, you know, uh, another thing we need to think about is... Uh, uh, the, how do you create a social currency for doing the right thing? Um, we have intrinsic moral obligations and feelings and people like you will emerge. But the problem right now is I think when you sort of have your head down and you're banging yourself through the scientific system, trying to get published, trying to get funding and eventually win some prize, um, all this, the sort of instinct that you are expressing right now is, isn't something that's really on the top of your, 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 your list of things that you're prioritizing. And that, that seems to be more of a cultural thing that we need to work on. But hopefully, um, people will start to feel that way before uh, some disaster happens. I mean, I think we see in climate that there is enough evidence to start to get to people thinking about it. But, um, but I think that we need to work, I think we need to be intervening at every layer of the system, including the, the values as well as the, the, um, the mechanisms. Um, Absolutely. Although it is true also that a lot of people have said, oh, well, I'm so glad you're doing the right thing, but I shouldn't be lauded for doing the right thing because you have provided me a platform and a space. Mm -hmm in which I'm incentivized to do the right thing. Yeah. And most scientists don't have that. The Media yeah. Lab is a very special place that lets me look at the whole system and do all these unorthodox things. Most scientists can't do that. They're actively punished if they do anything other than try to get a nature or science paper. Yeah. And so yeah. that's one aspect of the system that, that we also need to change. And because at the end of the day, would I be doing this if I hadn't been fortunate enough to land the Media Lab? I might have tried, but I... Can't say I would have succeeded. Well, on that note, uh, thank you, Kevin. This has been a fascinating conversation. Um, and uh, people can look you up online, and hopefully we'll see some of these uh, new uh, incentive systems get deployed pretty soon. Thank you, Joey. All right. Thanks. Indeed. See ya. Take care.